Good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. I hope you have a Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible today. And so if you don't have a Bible, just on your way out, just see one of our kiosks and let them know and, and we'll, we'll give you a Bible because we just want to look into God's Word today and we're going to be flipping around a little bit, uh, maybe as much as we did last week. Um, so just to go ahead and get you prepared so you can have a pen, paper, all that good stuff. Um, last week we talked about having the courage to say yes Having the courage to say yes to encouragement. We looked at the life of Barnabas. We looked at how he dealt with Paul and, and, and how he dealt with life in general and how he was consistent throughout all of his life in saying yes and being an encourager. And, and that seems like such a fluff word for us, but an encourager is a huge deal and it's a calling of God. It is something that we are commanded to not just do, but to be. <clears throat> and for that reason, we're gonna talk about this week, having the courage to say no. I'm a little bit under the weather, so I apologize so much if um, I'm a little bit scratchy, but I'm so excited about this, so I, I wouldn't want to be any other place. Have the courage to say, now we're going to look into uh, to the book of Daniel. So if you can go ahead and flip there, it's in the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about God's preparation of a man. God's preparation of a man really is just this, this thing of wonder in Scripture. When we watch it from afar, we cannot help but stand back and just be amazed and from man's perspective, when we look at what God's doing, we would attribute that as, you know, that's just the work of God. That's just the work of God. But what really is going on is that God is, is preparing his worker. And, it, and it's an active preparation that God's doing. He's always more concerned about the worker than the work, right? When we talked about this last week with encouragement, God is always more concerned as we focus on the ministry, he's focused on the minister and he's focused on the person and, and it doesn't boil down to a program, it boils down to a person and, and man and us. And so um, we're just excited about what, what God does with that. In my excitement, a lot of times I find myself being excited about what a man does. God gets excited about what a man is. You see the difference in, in what God is and what God looks at and what we look at um, because God knows what if, if a man is what he ought to be, then what he does will be right. And so that's what we find in this book, in the book of Daniel. So as you're turning there, I want us to look at this man, Daniel, and how he's tempted in, in, in this book in different ways and how he's tempted throughout it. And, and what we do, we, we are tempted ourselves to see what he did and the things that, that he just went across and checked off and did all that. But, but we come to realize that, that it all boils down to his influence and how his influence is far-reaching. And it wasn't about what he did, it's about what he was. And what's even more dramatic is how God prepared him to be the champion that he would become. Because you see, God was actually beginning his work in the life of Daniel long before these stories in this book were ever even written. Long before Daniel, being 14 years old, and this is so cool to me, just being a 14-year-old teenager, came to a palace in Babylon to be the king's man. As a 14-year-old, during his boyhood days, Daniel would have experienced some very deep relationships. And, and in the providence of God, he allowed Daniel to be born in the reign of a, of a young king named Josiah, the only good king in southern Judah. And so Josiah, if you don't know, just give you a little bit of background. Josiah was the first good king those people had seen in 57 years. I mean, in 57 years before Josiah, two kings back, there was King Manasseh who reigned for 55 years and he was, scripture says he was a wicked, evil king and so wicked that God refused to even forgive him. God refused to forgive him because he didn't give his heart to, to the Lord. And so he reigned for 55 years, just an evil, wicked king. After him was a, was a king named King Amon, his son. And Amon reigned for only two years, also wicked and evil. But in his two-year reigns, the scripture says that he was so bad that his servants sought to kill him and conspired against him. And when he least expected it, they took his life. The servants of his own home, the servants of his own house. He was that evil. He was that wicked. And then after Amon, 
he's followed to the throne by young King Josiah. And Josiah, the good king, was only eight years old when he came to the throne. And one of the greatest revivals in all of history took place under this great king that we read about who began to reign when he was eight and reigned until he was 39. Just years and years of revival. Second Chronicles tells us that in the eighth year of his reign, he began to seek God. In the twelfth year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all of their idols that they were worshiping. And so it began in the days of Josiah, the most remarkable revival, I think, that the world had ever seen up to that point. Because here's Josiah reigning, here's Jeremiah preaching, and here they are coming off of evil king, wicked king, and here they are with Josiah. As a young man, he's, he's learning the ways of the Lord, and here he comes reigning well as Jeremiah is preaching well, and this is just one of the greatest times up, uh, up against any other time in all of history. It may be the first big revival in his day. Because the reason it came about like that is Josiah was, was convicted about the terrible conditions of the temple. And so he put a group of men together and he said, you know what, you guys are going to go build, rebuild the temple of Solomon. And so as they went to rebuild, the Bible says that when they were doing that, they happened upon a book. And I heard Pastor Mike preach about this a long time ago. And, and it was, I haven't thought about that story in so long. And so since then, I've just mulled over the story. And it just amazes me still that the book was the book of the law, right? And they found this book in the temple. And I just, I'm so amazed that in that day that, that they found the book, the book of the law, the book, the book was lost in the church, like in the temple. It was lost and they just happened upon it. They just happened to find it. But I, I realize, and I just have to admit the reality of our culture is that the common experience for men and women across our country has to be the same. That we go to church every week and the book of the law for all practical purposes is lost. Might as well be lost because we never open it. Not only do we not open it, we don't obey it. We don't, we don't hinder our lives to it. We, we, don't, we don't revolve anything around it. And so it might as well just as be lost as it is back then as it is today. And it makes me so grateful just to serve in a church where the book is not lost. I'm so grateful to get to serve with, with leaders who care a lot about God's word and the truth in it. I, I love serving with pastors that, that love it and draw to it. I'm grateful and I, and I hate it because I think that we... I feel like that the, there's not many churches that do that. And I'm grateful to just be a part of one that does it. So as they were rebuilding the temple, they, they found this book of the law. And, and they took it to the king. They took it to Josiah. And, and Hilkiah, the priest, brought the book of the law to Shaphan, the scribe. And, and Shaphan brought it to, to Josiah, the king, and said, King, listen, I, I have this book. I found this book. And I want you to read this book, king. And so Shaphan began to read it in 2 Kings 23.2. And he says this. It says, the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Listen to this church. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people took a stand for the covenant. And so all throughout Josiah's reign, there was this great revival unlike anything that had ever been seen before in all of history up to that point. Nothing compared to the time 
when Josiah was on the throne, Jeremiah was preaching in the land and those two worked together to bring Judah back to truth and that God brought Judah to its knees where it belonged compared to God Almighty. And the cool thing is concerning our message today is that all along in that time period, in that great revival, there's this little, little kid running around named Daniel who's just running around in the kingdom a young prince in the court. And I've read that there's good evidence that he could have been the the nephew of a royal son in that court, which puts Daniel right in the middle of the intimate workings of that revival. And here's the interesting thing about the revival is if we were to judge its effect and how well it went on the king's family, we would say it was a failure. Because if you read on and you know scripture, you know that, that King Josiah's three sons and his grandson all were evil and wicked and they didn't care anything about God's truth. And so if you compare it to Josiah's family, you say, well, Josiah, that revival was a failure. It didn't even affect your own children. But you'd have to back off once you really began to look and you really began to see in that revival, there was a young man whose life was changed forever and who changed many other lives afterwards by the name of Daniel who was running around in there and his heart was so involved with that ministry and and under that rule and under that reign with Josiah and Jeremiah and all the other great influences that he brought it to the courts in Babylon later on in his life. And you know, these stories that, that he was tested and he was given this opportunity to take a stand in an uncompromising way. And in all of that, because he was raised like that and grew up in that, it brings us to this chapter in Daniel 1 which is where we're going to camp out for the majority of this message. In Daniel 1, it says this in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. All of this, he was raised around this great revival. He was raised around passion and around truth. And because he was raised like that, it led him to a point in his life where he stood alone. He was no longer surrounded by great men of God. He was no longer surrounded like that. He found himself in Babylon, found himself standing alone under a wicked king, a king who was ruthless and in your face against God. And here he stood and said, I'm not gonna do it. And he had this courage to say no in the face of opposition. God had been preparing Daniel all of his life for days like this when he would stand alone. And in the first few verses of the chapter, we see Daniel coming to Babylon. We see him being schooled there, going under that language, giving all the learning from the Chaldean nation and all this. And and he is wrapped up in that culture. And he's brought to a place where he must take a stand for God, the one true God and what's right. He must take a stand because the king wants him to eat the meat that had been offered to idols. He wanted him to drink the wine that that was unclean because it had been poured in honor of the wicked gods of Babylon. And Daniel knew, I shouldn't do this. He knew God wouldn't approve of this. He knew what God's truth said. And so Daniel said, I can't do it. Scripture says that's wrong. And so I have to draw a line right there. I can't do what the Bible forbids me to do. I can't do it. And that's where we're going to pick up the story of this man's uncompromising life. And I just love this. It's so full of passion. It's so good. So just stay with me in Luke, uh, I'm sorry, in Daniel chapter 1, verse, uh, let's go on to verse 9. Let's go on to verse 9. Daniel said this in verse 9. He said, now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And you know, let's back up, let's back up. He, he refused in verse 8 to compromise his life. We see that in verse 8. And you can't say the reason for his whole success is, is just wrapped up in the whole deal that, that he knew God and that was all it was. But he was determined to obey God. He was determined to do God. He would not violate the word of God. 
And so it, it even says in, uh, let me see, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, verse 8. Don't, don't flip there. Let me just go ahead and read this to you. It says, the grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of our God stands forever. He knew to obey that. He knew to stand close to that. Matthew 24, 35 says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It's a good thing in church. It's a good thing to know to draw near to the line where God's word draws. If you draw the line where God's word draws the line, that's safe and it will provide consistency for your life. It'll provide consistency for the rest of your days because it will not change. The only thing that won't change will be the bedrock of God's word and his truth and and the Lord. It's settled forever. And so he he drew that line. And so Daniel had this this statement to be able to say no in the face of opposition. And you read on, we'll we'll move on in a second to verse nine where Ashpenash, when temptation came, he said no to Ashpenash. And if he hadn't have said no, his history would not have been written in in this hall of fame. It would have been this life of failure for Daniel because everything in in the rest of the book of Daniel, everything that follows in this book, every word, every thought of holiness, every every thought of of rightness, everything falls down at this verse in verse eight that says Daniel purposed in his heart to do what was right. Everything falls to that. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He purposed. And I think that if we were to write a story about all of us here today, that there would be times and there would be places that we would have to make decisions that would affect the rest of our lives, that you would think it was just a small decision, but looking back at it, you would say that decision affected everything. It affected the rest of my life. I read this poem that a father gave advice to a son in, and I loved it, and I wanted to read it to you. It says, you're starting my boy on life's journey along the grand highway of life. You'll meet with a thousand temptations, each city where evil is ripe. The world is a stage of excitement. There's danger wherever you go. But if you're tempted in weakness, have courage, my boy, to say no. It says, in courage alone lies your safety. When your long journey begin, your trust in a heavenly father will keep you unspotted from sin. Temptations will go on increasing as streams from a revulent flow. But if you'd be true to your manhood, have courage, my son, to say no. Be careful in choosing companions. Seek only the brave and the true and stand by your friends in trial, not changing the old for the new. And when by the false friends you are tempted to taste of the wine cup to know with firmness, with patience, with kindness, have courage, my boy, to say no. Have courage, my boy, to say no. Have courage, my boy, to say no. Have courage, my boy, have courage, my boy, have courage, my boy, to say no. There's no parent here who who could sit in a room like this who, if you have not already done it, would not want to sit your son or your daughter down and look right in their face and say those very words to them. You will be faced with temptation. Anna Claire, listen, you are going to be thrown into a situation where you're going to have to stand up for what's right and no one else may do it, but you're going to be faced with that and it's going to take guts to say no. It's going to take courage to say no, but you better learn to say no if you expect God to do something in your life. You better learn to say no. I've got to learn to say no. Our teens have got to learn to say no. And so the resolution of Daniel's life is this, is, is, is that we do not need to bend the rules to be blessed by God. We need not bend the rules, no matter where your job is, no matter who you are, no matter what you come from, no matter what's going on in your life. His resolution is there is no need for me to bend a rule that God says don't bend, don't break, don't bend. Success is not dependent on us compromising what we've committed to. Do you get that? That's not success. 
What we've committed to, we can't compromise that. The story of compromise in the Bible, all throughout Scripture, is not a happy one when it comes to God's truth and compromising it. It's a sad tale. It's a sick tale. Everywhere you see compromise, you see loss and not gain. Everywhere. And we need to learn from this. Adam compromised God's law and followed his wife's sin and lost paradise, right? Abraham compromised the truth, lied about Sarah and almost lost his own wife. Sarah compromised God's word and he sent Abraham to Hagar and lost peace in their nation. Esau compromised for a meal with Jacob and he lost his birthright. Aaron compromised his convictions on idolatry and he and his people lost the promised land. Samson compromised his righteous devotion to what God had already told him with Delilah and he lost his strength, he lost his eyes and he lost his own life. David compromised the moral and divine standard of God with Bathsheba and he lost his child. Solomon compromised his convictions. Married foreign wives lost his passion for truth in his wisdom, the wisest man in the world. Ahab compromised and married Jezebel and lost his throne. Ananias and Sapphira, we talked about them last week, compromised their word about giving and they lost their lives. And then Judas compromised his supposed love for Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And he lost his eternal soul. Anywhere you see in scripture compromise when it comes to God's truth, wherever you see it in God's word, you will always see loss and not gain. And it's important to recognize it when you need to know how important is it for me to say no? How important is it for me to stand up in this little situation? It is very important. It's the little things that matter. It's the little things that take you down one road or another. The world's message to old and young alike. The world's message is if you want to get ahead, you're going to have to break a few rules to do it. If you want to get ahead, if you want to do what you are trying to achieve, you're going to have to break rules. But God says, listen, Kirby, you don't have to do that. You don't have to compromise. When you see in a few minutes that God gave Daniel such influence, it was given to him not because he broke the rules to get ahead. It was given to him because he refused not to budge when God said no. God says no, Tommy, then I mean no. When God said no, Daniel said no. And really, I really think about it. I think our world is hungry to see believers like that. Believers that stand for something. Believers that, that will stand up and say, just like Daniel, especially men, especially fathers of families, to say, I have determined in my heart not to do wrong. Fathers, can you imagine that? I've determined in my heart that I'm going to be an example for my family and anyone else that I will not do wrong. I heard this funny story about a professor who, uh, who was teaching some high schoolers, and he said, all of you who believe in the myths of the Bible, stand up. And several people stood up. And he said, those of you who are absolutely sure, you remain standing. And then some sat down. And he said, now this semester, I'm going to free you from this religious Bible nonsense. I read the Bible before, and it's written by a bunch of mixed up men. And I want to release you from that. And one young Daniel was standing there, and he said, Sir, the Bible is God's letter to Christians. And if you're confused, then that's what you get for reading somebody else's mail. <laughs> I kind of like that. We can also see the safe haven. That we have a safe haven in God. And this is big for us who are, who are struggling with temptation, who are struggling with, with meeting temptation and opposition with, with truth. To have an uncompromising life is a safe haven. God took care of Daniel when Daniel simply did what was right. He didn't do some outlandish thing. He just did what he was told to do. And in verse 9, what I wanted to jump to way early, earlier, says, uh, 
It's right after the verse where Daniel vows not to defile himself. Remember that? It starts off with two words. What are those two words? Now God. Now God. If you find yourself in any circumstance, under any persecution, around or tempted with any kind of sin, and if your heart resonates with the word in response in that verse 9, now God, things change, don't they? The temptation that seems so big, what seems so big in your life, all of a sudden it it diminishes compared to God. Because if God is in control of your heart and your life, the rest of it just kind of fades away. And so it starts off saying, now God had brought Daniel into the favor, favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. He brought him into the favor of the people that mattered most. Daniel didn't do anything special. He didn't do anything of himself. God just gave it to him because he was faithful. And so when Daniel needed, his, needed to work things out in that day and he, he wanted things to, to be done right and he wanted to take a stand for the Lord and to have this, this diet. We had problems with, with the king's diet. He had a friend where it counted in that eunuch. When we're in the will of God, he is our safe haven and he is our help. Daniel's life screamed, I would rather be captive in Babylon, but be in the will of God than free and reigning in Jerusalem out of the will of God. God is this safe haven when you do what's right. God is this this safe haven of truth for your life. And I would agree, and I, I hope you do too, that God is a safe haven when you're doing what's right. There's nothing like the will of God. People from Mississippi ask me, is it difficult to be 12 hours away from family? Is it hard? And I say, I mean, no disrespect to family, but there's a lot of peace when you're in the will of God. And I feel wonderful being in Michigan ministering because I know it's, it's the will of God. And so when, when, when God gives us something to say, when God gives us something to do, when, when, he, when he gives you a task, he is committed to you and committed to seeing you through that, to watch over you, to give you strength. Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. How about that? Isn't that great? Even your enemies will be at peace with you. And so lastly, I want to look at the outcome of an uncompromising life. When we take the first stand to just draw the line and, and take, take this huge stand for the Lord that just burns in us, it will begin to bleed over to the rest of your life. When you take that initial stand, to our teens, I have to say this, I have to tell us, that the time to take a stand for what's right needs to be the first time. And it needs to be the very first day of school. It needs to be the very first class. It needs to be the very first time in, in our new environment. It needs to be the very first opportunity. Why? Because it will give you the courage to take the stand when the test comes, when there comes more, and when there's no longer any other Christians around you and there's no family there, there's no parents helping you and there's no pastors to, to lift you up. It'll be in that moment that you need to say no and you need to take a stand for God because when you are alone, those times would have given you courage and those times would have supported you and been the bedrock and foundation of God helping you along. So it begins the very first time, the very first opportunity. Isn't it interesting that Daniel exhibits the kind of courage where he goes to the king's man and he says, listen, thank you for the invitation to eat at the king's table, but I've chosen not to defile myself with the king's food. Uh, Maybe I need to remind us who Nebuchadnezzar was. You may not know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, but I want to tell you a little bit. You don't want to mess with this guy if you don't know who Nebuchadnezzar is. Uh, Zedekiah, son of Josiah, when he realized that Nebuchadnezzar was, was taking over their city, 
He thought he could escape. And so he began to, to go and run through the, the king's garden in the back. And Nebuchadnezzar's men caught him and stopped him. And, and you know what they did? This is just unbelievable. They got all of his nobles. They got all of his sons, all of his children, gathered them together and put them right in the line and made him get right down on the ground. And they began to kill each one of his nobles, his favorites, his best men. And he began to kill each one of his sons each of his children. And if that wasn't enough, Nebuchadnezzar ordered a hot sword to be put through his eyes so that the very last thing he would see would be the murder of his, his sons, the murder of his nobles, the murder of those who he was closest to in all of life. That was who Nebuchadnezzar was. That was who he was. Another time in Jeremiah 22, he took a man and slow roasted him over a fire. That's the kind of king Nebuchadnezzar was. And when Daniel's friends decided that they wouldn't do what the king wanted, you remember the three Hebrew children? He threw them into the fire, right? That was who this king was. And so this is not a king you mess with. This is not a king that you just, you just are, are able to, to just walk up to him and say anything you please. This is the opposite of who this man was. And so in this passage, when Daniel walked into that palace and he told Ashpenaz, I can't not eat that food that's offered to idols, it's corrupted, it's defiled, it's wrong, and God says it's wrong, that takes courage. It takes courage to say no. And if you look at it from our viewpoint, you'd say that dude is either crazy or, or courageous. I mean, that dude is something else. That guy's crazy. But we know that it's his courage, not his craziness that comes out. It's his courage because he knows what God says and he knows what he needs to do with it. We see huge conviction in his ability to say no. I mean, you see conviction just lived out in his life, conviction against sin, conviction that Daniel went beyond the ordinary in this passage and took this high stand against any form of evil. Sometimes when I've read this story, I've thought that Daniel had to eat what they're calling pulse and water. I thought he had to eat that. There's nothing about that in scripture. Turn to Daniel 10, just really fast. Turn to Daniel 10, let me show you something. Daniel 10 Verses uh, two and three says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth. Well, what's that supposed to mean, Tommy? I don't get that. Well, that it was Daniel's normal pattern to eat meat. It was Daniel's normal pattern to do that according to the Old Testament. And so when Daniel said that I'm gonna eat pulse and drink water, he took a standard that was much higher than a standard than he was even called to do. He didn't have to take that high of a standard. But his conviction was that he wanted to live way above temptation. He didn't wanna come close to temptation. He was putting his standard high to where there were no doubts among anyone where he stood and who he followed. This pulse that he ate, which sounds nasty by the way, but this pulse that he ate literally means seed that was sown. That's all, kind, that, that's all I know. That's all that I read. There's all kinds of ideas that, that what pulse was. People back in Mississippi say that pulse was black-eyed peas. I kid you not. Um, I don't know. Miss Terry may think it's grits since she's from Georgia. I don't know what it is. But some people say, the only thing we know is that it's a form of cereal. Some seed that was sown, some vegetable. And Daniel knew that it came out of the ground, so he knew that it could not be Con, uh, condemned he knew it couldn't be defiled and so he had conviction to do that he also had this uncompromising life that stood for politeness and you think that's weak what are you talking about politeness that's weak but you see that he had been if he had been a fighting theologian like a lot of us 
and he had just gone in there and taken a stand in such a harsh way, and he would have wiped the whole kingdom out. Nebuchadnezzar would have responded with such a harsh response and just wiped out everybody. If he had just pounded the people, if he had called down fire and judgment on all those who didn't take a stand the way he thought they should, then afterwards you'd be picking up pieces all over the courts. You've been picking up pieces all over the kingdom. But look what he did. He purposed in his heart and he requested, he requested that he not defile himself. Hmm. Isn't that interesting to you? He didn't tell him, look, this way it is. He said, this is the way it is. This is the way I feel. And I'm asking you, I don't want to defile myself. I'm requesting. Sometimes we get the idea that if we take a strong stand, we got we to gotta be mean and nasty to take a strong stand. And it's just not so. Instead of defiance of authority, there was this dignified request. Let me point out that when you know that you're in the will of God and that you're doing what's right, it can be really calm, right? When you're in the will of God, you're doing what's right. It's, it can be really calm. You don't have to get crazy worked up all the time. Sometimes I think, sometimes we get so worked up and we get so loud simply because we're just not sure if we're right with whatever we're trying to argue and get into. And so when you're right, you can just be calm. You can be courteous. You can be polite. You don't have to be nasty. If you're walking with the Lord, there's a kind of quiet power that just hovers over your life. It's who you are. Daniel not only had this politeness, but he also had confidence. He had this confidence in himself, in God. When Daniel went to Ashpenaz in Daniel 1.10, and he requested that whole thing, Ashpenaz said this in verse 10. He said, I fear my Lord, the King, who has appointed your food and drink. I fear him. Even Ashpenaz knew Nebuchadnezzar and, and figured out, feared his own life because of this king. He knew who he was. I fear what you're saying to me. I fear your request. I don't know about this thing. And so when Daniel couldn't get it done by going to Ashpenaz, he, who was the, the second man in charge right under the king, he went to the third man in verse 11. He goes to, to another man and you see it in verse 12. It says, please test your servant for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of your young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. He says, listen, I don't want to get you in trouble. Daniel says, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. I didn't get anything from this guy, but I, I'm passionate about this. I'm, not, I'm requesting, let's just try this. Let's test my diet. Let's try my diet. And you say, how could Daniel be so confident? I mean, he's just going to these, to these big men. He's telling them his request and telling them what he thinks. How could he be that confident? He believed so much in the word of God that he knew that God would not let him down. Wouldn't it be great to be in a place like that to where you believe so much in God and what God says and what God's promised that you know God's not gonna let you down. God's gonna do it in however way. It's not about the method, it's about the maker, but you know who the maker is and you trust that. And you're with him and you understand that. And so he just knew. If God be for us, who can be against us, right? And so he says this and he lives this. He put himself on the line for the Lord. And, and you know, holy living always brings confidence. I, I really think that. Always. If you're always looking over your shoulder and you're always worried, well, what exactly did I say to her? Did I, did I give her this story? Did I say that? Or, or if you're worried about people looking at you and, or coming after you, you know, I mean, I think all of that is just a sign of you're not living right. I mean, if you're worried about exactly what did I say or, hey, I heard what you said, I want to talk with you about it later. If that brings a fear to you, 
then I think you have to take a step back and say, what am I doing in my lifestyle that brings fear like that? Because when you're doing what's right and you're just living a holy life, you let your yeas be yeas and nays be nays. If you're living like that, living a holy life, what's there to fear? What's there to be concerned about? There's something beautiful about having this clear conscience. You just breathe easier. You breathe much easier. You're not having to worry about if somebody finds out something that you did because you just live in an upright life. You're righteous and you're holy and you're acceptable. Not afraid of commitment because the whole kingdom knows that you live for holiness. That's what Daniel's living here. And he has this uncompromising life of consistency. He's consistent. That's the hardest thing, I think, in all of life, to be consistent. Most of us have good moments, but it's hard to do it day after day after day. But look at this, Daniel 1.21. Daniel 1.21 says, Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. He wasn't just right some or most of the time. He lived a consistent life for over 70 years. 70 years. Daniel was the same through it all. This is a wonderful chapter, this chapter one. Like if you can read it later, you're just gonna love it. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. But, but this is a great chapter without verse 21. I mean, it's, it could be fine without it. But the Daniel in verse 21, it's his own message that Daniel was consistent even through the captivity. Daniel was consistent when Nebuchadnezzar came and went. Daniel continued. Daniel continued when Darius came and went. Daniel was still there, continued, consistent. When Cyrus came, in verse 21, Daniel was still there being God's man in a place of influence. Isn't that great? He was there 70 years of uprightness. Think about Solomon, wisest man in the world ever lived but in his old age he died a broken defeated man because he went against his faith yet Daniel was consistent Daniel consistent so the last thing I want to talk with you about and I just want to honor our time is is the rewards of having an uncompromised life this is so unlike the way I normally preach I'm normally this one point and I just don't know any other way to do it so this is just such good truth I just want us to get every bit of it Daniel 1 contrasts the world's system of ethics here's a man who cut it straight Here's, a, here's Daniel who was just right on and was rewarded by God because he cut it straight. And I think that God still rewards us when we cut it straight and when we're right, when we're upright and holy and we're true. I think the reason so many Christians have issues with faithfulness is because we're trying to keep one foot on one side and one foot on the other. We're trying to keep one foot in each camp and we're, we're just trying to play that whole game. And, and the problem, I think, is that the more world and church mix the more it's difficult to see who Christians really are. And I really think that over years, years and years and years from now, as old as my daughters get, I think we'll continue to see more and more of a separation to where if you're a Christian, you'll be much different than the world. I really think that. I don't think we're gonna continue to just, let's mold this thing together and make it work. I think the, the, the more years that God allows this earth to go on, I think we will become more and more different. And you're gonna have choices to make in that difference to say, well, I say yes and compromise with God's truth. With God's truth, I'm not talking about the method, I'm talking about the truth, the man, the, the maker. Are you going to compromise that? And if you do, you're going to find issues that will last and it could be a legacy for the rest of your family until Jesus comes back. And so to compromise truth in a, in an, in a world that, that is compromised already just cannot be done. We have to have the courage to say no to that. I wish that we could determine today I wish it could just be all of our determination in our minds and in our hearts and our families that no matter what people say, 
No matter what I get and no matter what I don't get, no matter how I'm viewed, no, no matter what even the outcome is, whoever, whoever says something about me, whoever does it, whatever the, the word of God draws as the line, that would be where our line is. I wish that would be our determination. Wherever the word of God draws a line, let that be my line. Let that be my line in the sand. Mm. We see this, that Daniel's rewarded with this special impact, a really special impact in verse 13. It says, then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Verse 14, we'll keep going. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. He had this special impact. He had a charisma about him. So when Daniel and his friends stood up after 10 days of eating cereal, they had this visual impact that was noticeable. I mean, today he'd be doing commercials for Wheaties. You know, it's like he'd be on the cover. If you want to have power, if you want to have strength, eat pulse. That's where it is. You know, that's where he would be. He would be famous. And in that day, he was famous. After 10 days, he is just making a difference. And you say, well, that was the cereal. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. God did that for him because Daniel was faithful. Daniel did what was right, and God honored that. God also gave Daniel this great knowledge. Look in verse 17. God gave him great knowledge. As for these four young men... God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Skip to verse 20. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them 10 times better than those who were in all of his realm. So not only are they healthier, they come up and they're tested with knowledge. They are 10 times as wise as any magician, as any knowledgeable man in his kingdom. They're more fit. They're more knowledgeable. And God gave it to them. God gave them that wisdom. God gave them that intellect. God gave them the health. He gave them all that. Then he gave them great influence. You see, a special influence that they were given and that Daniel particularly was given. When the king saw how smart he was and he stood before the king, he enrolled in the palace, became the prime minister of this kingdom, I guess, pretty much. He was influential in in several different aspects. He was influential in the court. That the king saw who Daniel was and saw that his wisdom was great and saw that his health was great and saw that his, his ideas and, and devotion to the Lord was great. And so he was very influential in the court. To be prime minister of that court is a big deal, especially when you're an outsider coming in. And so he had influence on that court. Not only that, but he had influence on his friends, on his friends, the, those who were closest to him. And I love this. Can you imagine being friends with Daniel? that kind of passion, that kind of drive that started when he was a young man that went all of his life and continued until the Lord took him, went all of his life. Can you imagine that passion? Well, we know some of his friends. Look in Daniel 3. And this is how we're kind of starting to wrap this up. Daniel 3, verse 16. says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, remember who they're talking to. Remember this, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Remember who we've been talking about? Like throw them in the fire kind of guy, like roast them, kill them, poke their eyes out. This is who they're talking to. And they say, we have no need to answer you. We got, we got no need to answer you what you're saying. Verse 17, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, 
This is crazy. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So we don't care what you do, king. We know that you're, you're big and bad and all that, but we don't care what you do. We don't care who you are. Who do you think they've been hanging out with? They've been hanging out with Daniel. Daniel's been given that passion, and, and there's a lot of them that have been following Daniel's footsteps. And they got that from Daniel. Daniel, who was raised like that, had incredible influence over the courts. The courts honored him. Had incredible influence over his friends. His friends wanted to be like him. And then he had incredible influence over the captives. If you know anything about this, the captives, they, they said, that's our man in that palace. He's our man. They were in captivity. They said, he's our guy. Daniel's our man. Three times in this book of Daniel did it say this, this phrase about him. A man that was greatly beloved. Oh man, that was greatly beloved. Oh man, that was greatly beloved. Why? Because he was the champion for his people that were in exile. He was the one that they got their strength from. They would wake up and say, Daniel's there for us. We're doing this. God has provided Daniel and Daniel's leading us. Daniel's our man. You keep leading us, Daniel. We'll go wherever you say that God says. And so here they go and they gain courage and strength from this man who had courage to say no, who had courage to stand against what was wrong. And so they, they are just enthralled with their champion. He's the one that they got their strength from. He's the one that they rallied around while they were in their land. And that, that phrase, what was so interesting, is that that phrase is only mentioned about one other person in all of Scripture. Christ. In all of Scripture. And so what a beautiful statement to be said about you. Oh man, who's beloved. Greatly beloved. Greatly beloved. You're greatly beloved. The courts loved him. The courts drew to him. His friends loved him and they drew to him. They wanted to be like him. They wanted to have his courage. They wanted to have his passion. And the captives who were in persecution wanted to, to follow him no matter what he said, no matter where he led them because he was following God and they knew that simple truth and that was enough. There's this wonderful passage in the book of Ezra that, uh, that says, in the reign of Cyrus, when, when Cyrus was king, that one day that, uh, that the Jews were called to be captives and the friends of Daniel said, it pretty much the story was that the friends of Daniel were, were asked, do you want to go back and do you want to rebuild the city that you came from? Because if you do, I'll let you. The king said, if you want to go back and rebuild that city that's so dear to you, I'll let you do that. And they said, yeah. And so they went back and they rebuilt, rebuilt that city. And what I find so cool is that in Daniel 10, and this is the last verse we're going to look at, Daniel 10 verse 1, it says this. Just the very first part it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. And so it, it shows that Daniel was there for Cyrus. When Cyrus was there, he was there. And you have to think, as passionate as Daniel was, you have to wonder if it was Daniel who went to Cyrus the king to get permission for them to go back. Because he was their champion. He was their spokesman. He was the mouthpiece of God. And so Cyrus, who, who looked looked at, at what he had, had lived like in these 70 years, who had looked at, at what kind of lifestyle Daniel had lived and his faithfulness to God. And had looked and seen what Jeremiah had stood for and, and all this. In 70 years, here he was. And, it, and he said, Cyrus, look, it's time. Cyrus, it's time. I've been here 70 years. These people have been hurting. It's time for them to go home. Would you please, would you please let them go back home? And so Cyrus came to them and he did and he released them could it have been Daniel that did that I don't know any other person that it could have been 
Because Daniel was their spokesman. He was everything to them. And it had been since he was 14 years old under pressure. He lived his whole life until he was in his 80s or 90s as a constant testimony to his God and his Lord. Do you know where that started? It started back on the first day when he was tempted to compromise. But he knew what was right. And he just simply said no. Can you just stand with us and let's pray, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I have no idea what you're tempted with today. I have no idea what's going on in your life. Some of you, this is your very first time to to be with us at our church. And I'm just so thankful for you to be here, for your attentiveness to God's word. And and I just want to pray for you in just a moment. but, But I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to be honest with God and not be worried about, you know, what you got coming up next or whatever we got to do. I don't want you to dismiss yourself yet. I want you to just stand right where you're at. Just stay right there. And I want you to to say, God, what are you trying to tell me? God, what am I saying yes to that I should be saying no to? God, what is the stand I've got to take? Am I laughing at stuff that I shouldn't laugh at? Am, Am I taking a stand for anything? Am I am I leading my family down the right path? Because I'm telling you, church. The more years God gives us on this earth, the more we'll be tempted to compromise the truth of God for what the world says. And as we begin to mix that and match that, it's not going to fit and it's not going to work. And you're going to find yourself, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I'm telling you the truth. You've got to come to a point, even today, where you say, I will take a stand if no one else does and say, no, no, it's not right. No, it's not okay. It's It's wrong. I'm going to take a stand for truth. I'm going to take a stand for for the rightness of God. I'm going to take a stand for Scripture. God wants many of us in this room to be influential. I'm not talking about a title. I'm not talking about a position. I'm talking about influence, a leader. And what's beautiful about that is that leaders in here can be quiet leaders. Leaders in here aren't necessarily the the loudest or the ones that are best with their words. They can be quiet leaders who just do what's right. And God says, I'll honor your faithfulness. I'll honor your faithfulness and I'll give you more. I'll honor that faithfulness and I'll give you more. So if you're a teenager who says, I don't have the words, I don't know what to do. I'm telling you, you've got to say no to that temptation. You've got to say yes to being everything God wants you to be. If your mom or a dad who feels like you're, you're just being that best friend to your son, to your daughter. And man, things are good. But you know things are good in a bad way because you stand for nothing to your son. Your daughter's not learning from you truth of God. She's not learning to pray from you. They're not learning to do what's right and to take a stand from you. Daniel learned it as a 14-year-old boy surrounded by men and women who loved God. And because of that, he could stand later on in life for what was right when no one else would. I'm afraid that we're raising students and children in homes that are fluff and soft and compromised. And so our challenge today from Scripture is that for Tommy Swindle to not be a compromised man, for me to take a stand to do what's right and to not compromise the truth of God. So as you're just standing there and praying, would you just talk to the Lord about that? If that's at an altar prayer, if that's right where you're at, would you just speak to God about that and listen to what he's telling you? Listen to what he's speaking to you. World full of broken dreams Where the truth is hard to find 
every promise that is kept there are many left behind though sometimes it is hard to know who is right and what is wrong and where are you supposed to stand when the battle lines are drawn Will you be the one To answer to his call and Will you stand When those around you fall Will you be the one To take his life to a dark 